Breaking news, live from the newsroom. Eastern Airlines Flight 663 takes detour to Atlantic, leaves 84 passengers wet. Mary Queen of Scots gets the axe for Babington plot. And Shergargon say gunmen, Pantis Isu. Plus, coming up, a special report on the shocking rise in litter in the Galapagos Islands. It's all down to the tortoises, we're told. Those are the headlines. You heard it here first, and you'll hear it here last. News bang! A taste of truth served with a side of satire. And in 1965... Breaking news just in, tragedy struck the skies above New York today as Eastern Airlines Flight 663 plunged into the Atlantic Ocean like a stone, skipping on water, killing all 84 people who were foolish enough to be on board. The doomed flight took off from John F. Kennedy International Airport, named after an airport slain in Dallas, and was en route to parts unknown before deciding to make an unscheduled stop at the bottom of the ocean. Eyewitnesses described scenes of utter chaos as holidaymakers' tans faded before their very eyes. One bystander, Mickey Mouse, said, I was minding my own business when I saw this big metal thing fall out of the sky. I thought it was goofy again, but nope, it was that darn plane. Another witness, Daisy Duck, added, It's a tragedy, really. Now how am I supposed to get home? The cause of the crash remains unclear, but early reports point towards pilot error, or possibly a cartoon duck flying too close to the engines. An investigation is underway, but until then, our thoughts are with those affected. Except for Pluto. He never did anything wrong. On this day in 1587, Mary Queen of Scots met her grisly end at Fotheringhay Castle. The Norman Motta and Bailey impersonator was found guilty of plotting to babysit Elizabeth I's throne. Mary, known as Jockette Tudor to her friends, had been scheming with the Babington Five, a motley crew of bearded conspirators led by Professor Mariarty. Their plan, to off Liz and install Mary on the English throne, much to the dismay of patriotic subjects everywhere. Eyewitnesses described how Mary was led shakily to the executioner's block, where she uttered her immortal last words. Intoxicated by my own popularity, I stand before you a changed woman. With that, she was beheaded, or scotless, as it were. Her head tumbled into a basket which promptly fell apart due to shoddy workmanship from B&Q. Q, national mourning and remorse. 1983. Now a done it or should I say, nay done it, because on this day in 1983, the world of horse racing was rocked by the disappearance of none other than Shergar. The 13-hand-tall Irish stallion vanished without a trace from his stable in Newry County Armagh. A ransom note demanding £2 million soon arrived at the jockey club, signed simply, The Lads. Suspicions immediately galloped towards the IRA, who denied any horsenap involvement, but remained silent, as to whether they'd had any furlongs in it. An insider close to Seabiscuit said, it could be them or it could be some colt and bolted. The racehorse community was left saddled with fear. Even Red Rum refused to comment Nate way. Despite an extensive main hunt and police checks at all major hayyards, no clues emerged as to Sherger's whereabouts. Some believe he may have been turned into glue knee sausages for a post-race meetup in the Great Paddock in the Sky. 
others that he trotted off into retirement with some filly called Mane Chance down Mexico Way. Whatever happened to our equine friend, it remains one of equestrian history's most baffling tales. I mean, tales. News Bang, the daily dose of dose of reality. Here's Shakanaka Giles with your weather forecast for tomorrow. Tomorrow, in the southeast, expect a frosty start, like a pensioner's glare at a teenager on a bus. Temperatures will rise to a balmy 5 degrees, akin to a warm hug from a slightly damp aunt. Moving on to the Midlands, where it will be a bit like a slug on a salt mine. Cold, damp and generally unpleasant. Snow showers are expected, so it will be a winter wonderland for those who enjoy the sensation of wet socks. Up in the north, it'll be a blustery day, much like a toddler's tantrum in a toy shop. Winds will be strong enough to blow the cobwebs off your winter coat and the hat off your head. Over in Wales, it'll be a mixed bag of weather, like a lucky dip at a charity shop. Expect rain, hail, and possibly even a bit of sunshine. In summary, a frosty start, a damp hug, a winter wonderland, a toddler's tantrum, and a lucky dip. And that's all the weather. Nineteen eighty-three. The year is 1983, and the equine world was left reeling when Shergar, a prized Irish racehorse, vanished without a trace. The thieves demanded a ransom of £2 million, but the payment was never made. Speculation has long linked the IRA to the daring theft, yet they have never publicly acknowledged their involvement. As we delve deeper into this tale of high-stakes horseplay, we turn to our crime correspondent Ken Shit for further insights. Good evening, degenerates. As we travel back in time to the year 1983, let's revisit a tale that's as infuriating as it is mystifying. Ladies and gentlemen, prepare yourselves for the greatest heist in horse racing history, the theft of Shergar, the Irish racehorse. Shergar was a legendary beast, a champion on the track and a symbol of pride for the Emerald Isle. But on the fateful night of February 8th, 1983, this magnificent creature was snatched from his stable like a bloody loaf of bread. The thieves demanded a ransom of two million pounds, a sum that would make even the most hardened gangster blush. But the money was never paid and the trail went cold. The IRA has been implicated in the theft, but they've never admitted to it, leaving us with more questions than answers. This is a slap in the face to justice, a kick in the teeth to the rule of law. Shergar deserves better than this, and so do the people of Ireland. We demand answers, and we demand them now. The perpetrators of this heinous crime must be brought to justice, and we won't rest until they are. Shergar was more than just a horse. He was a symbol of hope and pride for an entire nation. And we won't let his memory be tarnished by the cowardly actions of a few misguided individuals. This is Ken Shit, reminding you that justice is not negotiable and that we will not rest until the truth is uncovered. Until next time, degenerates, 
stay angry. 1837. Today in 1837, history was made when Richard Mentor Johnson became the only Vice President of the United States ever elected by the Senate. Serving as the ninth Vice President under President Martin Van Buren, Johnson's tenure was marked by his representation of Kentucky in both the U.S. House of Representatives and Senate. The Vice President holds a crucial role as the second highest officer in the executive branch and presides over the Senate. Elected for a four-year term alongside the President, they wield significant power in confirming appointments, ratifying treaties, and trying cases of impeachment. And we turn now to our political correspondent Hardiman Pesto for more on this historic election. I'm here in Washington, D.C., outside the Capitol building, where history is being made today. For the first time ever, a vice president has been elected, not by the people or the Electoral College, but by the Senate itself. An unprecedented move. And who is this mystery man they've chosen for the second highest office in the land? His name is Richard Mentor Johnson, and he's quite a character. Known for his long, disheveled hair and scruffy attire, his critics have dubbed him Rumpsy Dumpsy, a behind-his-back. But his supporters see a war hero who served with distinction at the Battle of the Thames in the War of 1812. Yes, a decorated veteran. Though there are rumours his wife is a slave, he refuses to set free. Can a man with such a controversial personal life effectively lead the nation? An excellent question, Martin. When I spoke to Senator Daniel Webster earlier today, he called the selection an embarrassment and worried it would tarnish the dignity of the office. Webster is a renowned orator. What exactly did he say? His words were, that scoundrel Rumsey Dumsey being elevated to vice president besmirches the hallowed halls of governance. The man keeps his wife in bondage, yet calls himself a patriot. Tis hypocrisy of the highest order. My word, he really lit into him, didn't he? Can you see if the new vice president has any kind of response? The people deserve to know how he defends himself. I tried to get a comment, but Johnson just glared at me silently while his aide explained he does not own slaves, but they are his wife's property, over which he has no control. A dubious justification indeed. Back to you, Martin. Well, there you have it, folks. Rumpsy Dumpsy skulking away without addressing the controversy head-on. Who knows what manner of man this Richard Mentor Johnson really is? Hardiman Pesto there, from Washington, D.C.? 1924. In a chilling chapter of American history, G. John, a Chinese national and member of the Hip Sing Tong Criminal Society, was executed by lethal gas in Nevada. This marks the first instance of such a method used in the United States. The victim, an elderly member from another gang, met his untimely end at the hands of John. As a consequence, the gas chamber was conceived and developed. Now to delve deeper into this intriguing tale of frontier justice, we turn to our correspondent Melody Wintergreen for her report. Nevada State Prison, where the winds of change are blowing a toxic breeze through the annals of American justice. G. John, a name that will forever be etched in the morbid milestones of penal history, stands as the first man to ride the vaporous steed of cyanide into the great unknown. The air is thick with anticipation and quite literally, with lethal gas. The chamber, a grim vestibule of retribution, awaits its inaugural guest. John, convicted for a crime that echoes the violent whispers of gangland lore, 
finds himself at the center of a macabre debut. As the clock ticks towards his final breath, engineers of eternity calibrate their instruments of demise. This is no mere execution. It's an industrial revolution in mortality management. And as G. John takes his last gasp amidst the hisses of hydrocyanic harmony, America ushers in an era where death comes not with a bang, but with a whisper. A whisper that smells suspiciously like bitter almonds. Melody Wintergreen, reporting for Newsbang, Nevada State Prison. Newsbang, the unvarnished truth straight from the horse's mouth. Today, we revisit the year 1879 when tensions on the cricket pitch in Sydney boiled over like a poorly managed pot of bangers and mash. Ryderboff guides us through the chaos that ensued following a controversial umpiring decision. The year is 1879, and let me tell you, the cricket pitch in Sydney was as tense as a tightrope walker's washing line. Spectators, fueled by what can only be described as a patriotic potion of meat pies and ale, erupted into chaos. The English team, led by Captain Reginald Sticky Wicket Farnsworth, faced the wrath of an incensed crowd following a controversial umpiring decision. And there it is. The bales have been knocked off quicker than a toupee in a hurricane. But wait, the umpire's finger remains down like an obstinate toddler refusing bedtime. And the crowd goes wild. They're storming the field with more ferocity than my ex-wife during alimony negotiations. Sydney, that jewel in New South Wales crown, which I always thought was rather presumptuous, since they don't even have a monarchy, became an amphitheatre of uproar. One could say it was Australia's answer to the Boston Tea Party if tea were replaced with cricket bats and historical significance with sporting fury. Now let me share a personal anecdote from my own days on the green. I once bowled what I believed to be the perfect googly during a friendly match against the Lower Piddlington Pub 11. As fate would have it, my delivery struck not wicket nor pad, but straight into Percy Three Pints, McGinty's pint glass, shattering glass and dreams alike. Back to 1879, where England's cricketers found themselves ducking for cover under leather-bound missiles that were once reserved for applauding their sixes and boundaries. It was pandemonium on par with when Aunt Mabel discovered her prize poodle had been sheared into resembling a miniature lion at last summer's village fete. As history tells us, no good riot comes without its ringleaders. Enter basher Bill Thompson and rowdy Roger O'Sullivan, two men whose love for cricket was only surpassed by their enthusiasm for public disorder. In conclusion, while England may have brought their bats and balls to Sydney that day in 1879, they left with bruised egos and possibly some newfound dodging skills worthy of any self-respecting matador. That's all from yesteryear's sport. Join me next time when we'll dive headfirst into another chapter of history's rich tapestry. Polly Beep, bringing you traffic updates that will make you feel like a time traveller. From the swinging 60s to the present day, She's got the lowdown on what's causing chaos on the roads. Well, hello, fellow road warriors. Tonight, we're time traveling back to the groovy year of 1965. A domestic passenger flight, Eastern Airlines. Flight 663 has tragically crashed into the Atlantic Ocean after departing from the bustling John F. Kennedy International Airport. All 84 souls on board have been lost.
commuters on the M606. Take a moment to pay your respects. In other news, the A19 facing some rather peculiar delays. The Beatles have just landed at Heathrow and thousands of screaming fans are causing chaos. So if you're on the M4, expect a hard day's night of gridlock. On the M1, a large group of mods and rockers are battling it out, creating a spectacle that's making even the most seasoned commuters stop and stare. Police are advising drivers to twist and shout their way through the chaos. Over on the A66, a new phenomenon called mini-skirts is causing quite the stir. Motorists are stopping to admire the fashionable ladies, causing delays and a few accidents. And finally, the M25 is facing a sound of silence as Bob Dylan's new electric guitar has caused a power outage. Commuters are advised to blow in in the wind their way through the darkness. So keep your spirits high and remember it's a magical mystery tour out there tonight. 1879. Calamity Prenderville delves into a historical epoch teeming with innovation as she recounts the genesis of standard time zones and the indispensable role of engineer Sanford Fleming in this intricate tapestry of progress. Good evening, newsbangers. It's time for a blast from the past. Let's travel back to 1879, when our beloved Britain was the epicentre of innovation. No, I'm not talking about the invention of the tea cosy or the creation of the first rainproof umbrella. I'm talking about something far more groundbreaking, standard time zones. On this day in history, engineer and inventor Sanford Fleming proposed the idea of standard time zones based on a single universal world time at a meeting of the Royal Canadian Institute. This man was clearly ahead of his time, much like our current Prime Minister, who can simultaneously brew a cup of Horlicks and solve quantum physics equations. But wait, there's more. Not only did Fleming propose standard time zones, but he also promoted the use of the 24-hour clock. Talk about multitasking. It's as if he foresaw the chaos that would ensue from having 20 different ways to say 2 o'clock. And if that wasn't enough, Fleming designed Canada's first postage stamp, because what better way to celebrate the synchronisation of clocks than with a stamp? It's like getting a trophy for finishing your homework on time. Standard time zones were established during the 19th century to aid weather forecasting and train travel. Imagine trying to coordinate train schedules without standard time zones. It would be like trying to organise a pub crawl without a designated starting point or an agreed-upon number of pubs to visit. So here's to Sanford Fleming, the unsung British hero who saved us all from the nightmare of having 20 different ways to say two o'clock. Cheers to that. This is Calamity Prenderville from Newsbang, signing off. Newsbang. The news as truthful as it needs to be. And, um... 1960. And in a story that has captured the imagination of the world, we turn our attention to the glitz and glamour of Hollywood. The year is 1960, and the Walk of Fame in California is now a historic landmark. 
over 2,765 stars embedded in the sidewalks pay tribute to achievements in the entertainment industry. Luminaries from the realms of acting, directing and music are immortalized in this unique tribute. But what lies beneath these terrazzo and brass monuments? What secrets do they hold? Joining us now to shed some light on this celestial avenue is our correspondent, Smithsonian Moss. Now at this point of the evening, we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Waho, you beautiful creatures of the night. It's your favorite culture vulture, Smithsonian Moss, swooping in with the deets on the glitziest, the ritziest, and the starriest street in all of Tinseltown. The Hollywood Walk of Fame. Oh, honey, if these stars could talk, they'd be spilling more tea than the Boston Tea Party. So, the year is 1960, and Hollywood decides to roll out the red carpet, but, like, permanently, right on the sidewalk. Over 2,765 stars. That's more stars than in my ex's eyes when I told him I was leaving him for a job that actually pays. Now, these stars, they ain't just for anyone. We're talking the creme de la creme of showbiz, baby. Actors who've cried on cue, directors who've yelled cut more times than my hairdresser, and musicians who've hit high notes higher than my last weekend at Coachella. And let me tell you, the drama on this sidewalk could outshine any soap opera. There's been feuds, there's been fights, and there's been more shade thrown than at a solar eclipse. But hey, that's Hollywood, baby. Where the smiles are fake, but the legends are real. So, whether you're a washed-up child star or a pop diva with more comebacks than a yo-yo, the Hollywood Walk of Fame is where you go to be immortalized in terrazzo and brass. It's like the yearbook of the entertainment industry, except you can't just scribble hags and move on. And just remember, for every star on that walk, there's a story. A story of dreams, of heartbreak, of that one time they got so drunk they ended up with a tattoo of their own face. Classic Hollywood. All right, my lovelies, that's a wrap on this star-studded saga. Keep dreaming big, and who knows, maybe one day you'll be stepping on someone's name on your way to grab a latte. Smithsonian Moss, out. News Bang, unveiling the veil of untruth. And now, just time for a look at tomorrow's headlines. The Times. Jefferson Davis named President of Confederate States. There's a picture there of the man himself. The Express. Germans laugh off Allied air raid in Norway. There's a graph there of laughter. The Mail. Guadalcanal declared secure after battle. There's a picture there of an empty battlefield. And finally, the Mirror. Chocolate fountain pours out sweets. That's it. On the day that the last known case of leprosy in the British Isles was confirmed in Glasgow, good night from me and good luck to you all. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night. <laughs>